Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello, and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as many of our regular listeners will know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire our global listeners to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Before we kick things off, really would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast. It makes a world of difference. It helps us in the rankings, and it helps other people discover this podcast as they're searching for really interesting content. So if you do subscribe, that would be greatly appreciated. And today, I have the great privilege and pleasure of introducing our guest, Vikas Potta, who I've known for a few years. He is the chair of the Varki Foundation. Uh, the Varki Foundation, you may know, is also the driver behind the uh, $1 million uh, Global Annual Teachers Prize, which is really interesting. And also, he's the CEO of Tomorrow Digital, which is an ed tech or education technology investment vehicle, and he'll tell us a little bit more about that as well. I've known Vikas for a few years, and last time I saw you actually was about a year ago, in Dubai, where it was the Global Education and Skills Forum that you organized, tremendous convening power that you have there, and we can talk a little bit about that. Vikas, welcome on board. It's such a pleasure to have you today. Thanks, Alberto, and uh, many congratulations on launching your podcast. I think um, I think you have a lot of insights to share, given your experience, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Ah, that's wonderful. Tell us a little bit about the Varki Foundation and Tomorrow Digital. Sure. The common thing that they have, actually is a gentleman by the name of Sunny Varki, who I work for. Where he has made a success is in entrepreneurship and building his enterprises and businesses. Um, the, the one that is uh, most recognizable is a company called Gems Education, which provides private education, particularly in the Middle East, for expats. As a result of the success of that business, on the 50th anniversary of that business, you know, he decided to set up his own foundation. And I had just started working for him and he said to me, would you be interested in also leading this? And I, I didn't come from philanthropy or education at that time. And I took on the challenge and um, things have worked out pretty well. You know, we've learned um, a significant amount in our journey. Um, and I'm happy to share that with your listeners. Your personal story. So where, where did you come from in terms of your career progression and so forth? How did you end up here? You know, my mother still rues the fact that I didn't become a doctor or an engineer. Um, <laughs> But I, after university, I went on to a graduate program at HSBC Bank. And from there, I did a number of different roles. And I ended up setting my own business up in, um, in strategic communications and lobbying with a particular focus on India and Europe. Uh -huh. uh, simply because India at that time was taking off, um, you know, it was booming. And there was a lot of interest in, in that market. Um, as a result of that business, I, you know, Sunny Varki and Gems were a client of mine. And, uh, you know, we had a discussion and it just made sense for me to jump over to help him on a permanent basis. The public relations, advocacy, lobbying, all of that, I, I imagine it's invaluable experience and expertise to have, but also really relevant in terms of driving forward behavioral change and awareness. And the Varki Foundation, from what I understand, one of those key things is about boosting the status of teachers, which is not always very high in, in the eyes of many people. Generally speaking, um, in this sector, in particular, the philanthropic sector, in the NGO sector, I think we do a terrible job in communicating. And given the media cycle as it currently stands, if we just take the UK to break through uh, in the media, you know, when we have so many um, things like Brexit going on, it's a pretty tough thing. And that's why we need as a sector to step up 
and say, well, how do we how do we capture people's imaginations and 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 mind share? And that is why you know I've always been of the belief that that communication is critical to everything that we do. And the one million dollar Global Teacher Prize, I imagine that is a multi-purpose initiative, isn't it? In terms of trying to achieve certain things, but also it's a communication exercise, isn't it? You know, it was set up actually. Um, uh, we've just given our fifth prize. It's an annual prize, like you Congratulations. mentioned. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. And um, and when we when when uh, when my boss actually had the idea, you know, I thought it was it was a pretty um, you know outlandish thing to do, right. which is to give to give a million dollars to one teacher as a personal gift. And and we thought about this a lot actually, how we tackle that particular conundrum because. You know, especially in the West, um, you know, you have a lot of opposition to large sums of money, uh, philanthropy, um, you know, having an impact in education, that kind of thing. And so in the end, we bit the bullet, as we say it, um, and avoided the um, uh, the dilemma entirely by making sure that we were very clear that it was a personal gift as opposed to just for a public benefit. So that allowed the teacher to do as they wanted um, with the prize money. And, you know, all five winners have used it for charitable purposes to enhance teaching and, and their particular situations in their schools, uh, which is credit to them. But the thing that we learned was um, what precipitated actually the prize was a, a study that we, we conducted in 2013, looking at the status of teachers in 21 countries. And at that point, what we found was that only in China are teachers seen in the same regard as doctors. And, you know, Mr. Varki's um, parents were teachers and being, of, and being of Indian heritage, you know, the word guru comes from India and he felt it quite a quite a challenge in terms of, well, if we if we are to tackle this um, existing recruitment and retention crisis of the teacher workforce, uh, we have to think about the cultural aspects to it, which include status. And so he set his mind to actually, well, how do I how do I try to raise the status of teachers? And at that time, he came up with this idea of giving a million dollars to a teacher. Teacher prizes, as you know, are not are not a new thing. I mean, they've existed for time immemorial. Uh, but what makes this different is that it is a global contest. It is it is a million dollars, and we have received significant goodwill and support from very important people, celebrities, you know, actors in the world uh, who 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 have influence. And that's what's been really interesting about the prize. And it's something that I'm enormously proud of um, in terms of trying to set the agenda. You know, I've just come back from Brazil where uh, I met the, uh, the, this year there was a top 10 finalist from, from Brazil, a lady called Debbie Garofalo. Uh -huh. She works in a, in a favela school in Sao Paulo uh, where they have tons of scrap plastic and, and, you know, just rubbish lying or litter lying around literally. And what she did was she, she used um, that scrap to encourage the kids to make robotic toys. And she created a curriculum around that. Um, now, what happened was because of the platform of the Global Teacher Prize, she came into prominence in Brazil. And the state secretary, this is the minister for education for the state of Sao Paulo, which has a, which has a population of, uh, of 45 million people, you know, said to me on, on the record that as a result of the Global Teacher Prize, he changed the curriculum in his schools to reflect what Deborah does. And now you just think, well, this is a prize of a million dollars, which she didn't win, but yet look at the impact that the platform has enabled it to have. Um, and like that, I can point you to many stories around the world, actually, um, now that we have five years worth of experience 
experience where there's been significant impact. And so I'm really proud of the prize, not just because of the glitz, the glamour, the, the show, uh, but actually the impact that it's, that it's beginning to have. That's such a, such a great story. What's the process, by the way, uh, for, for applying or, or being considered for, for the prize? How does it work in case any, any teachers out there are listening to this podcast? So they should keep a very close eye on our social media channels firstly, but then there's a website called globalteacherprize.org. Okay. And in, in, a, in a few weeks, we will actually be launching the process to find our next winner. And there's a window of some four months. So we'll start in October where you either are nominated or you yourself apply. And because of the kind of cash prize that we, 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 we offer, we do, we do ask a, a lot of questions and we, are, we, we want a lot of detail that enable us to actually, you know, make a determination as to whether you go through or not to the next stage. Um, and so what I would say to those that are interested in nominating or teachers that are interested in applying is uh, to spend some time uh, because, you know, regardless of whether you win, you know, there is a, a huge benefit of becoming part of a network of the best teachers in the world. And every year you have 10 finalists, I suppose, uh, and then from, from there one is chosen? Yeah, so we actually go through a process where we shortlist or we longlist 50 uh, teachers, and that's usually announced in, in December. Okay. And then, and then from that 50, we shortlist down to 10, and from the 10, we go to the one. And that one is announced at a most incredible ceremony that this year, um, you know, Hugh Jackman performed The Greatest Showman in uh, and announced the winner of our prize, who is a Kenyan teacher um, who, who, who advocates for better science and maths education in a very rural location that he, that he is in. Uh, what's remarkable about Peter Tabichi is that given the context, he's able to get outsized results. Um, which are quite interesting for all of us to understand because it's often these rural schools which are resource depleted and deprived and get no attention. And yet he is succeeding. That's incredible. The Varki Foundation, it's a, it's a global outfit, I would imagine. You have a presence in, in Dubai, in the UK. I'm originally from Argentina and I know you've done some really interesting things in Argentina as well and tell us a little bit about the global footprint and your approach to systemic change. Sure. In our very short time span or lifespan, we've been around for about 10 years now and we've gone from being a co corporate social responsibility arm of GEMS Education to being a corporate foundation, to being a family foundation now. That journey normally takes you know a fair amount of time but we've, we've made that journey in about seven, eight years, uh, which I think is quite interesting. The second thing is that in terms of what we do, um, yes, of course, we have advocacy initiatives, whether they include the Global Education and Skills Forum, which is, which I'd like to think is the best education conference in the world, mm -hmm. um, the, the Global Teacher Prize, which is imaginative and, and captures, um, captures, as I said, imagination, all the way through to actually thinking about how we train school leaders and teachers. So in Argentina, you mentioned, in the last three years, our team in Argentina has implemented a leadership and innovation program where nearly 6,000 school principals and directors have taken the course themselves. Um, and this is in partnership with five provinces in Argentina. And it's, it's been usually successful in terms of that mind shift that we need school leaders to take. 
uh, and to make, which has resulted in something like 3,600 innovation projects in these schools, great political buy-in from the provinces, which are not necessarily of the same party as the central government, and that kind of thing. We've decided through our foundation, whether it's through our advocacy, through our, through our programming, or through our grant making, that teachers and educators and school leaders in particular are, are our focus areas, because we believe that without them, you can't really change education systems, you can't change schools, um, you know, teachers are central to anything that you do in education, we need to bring them and strengthen their capacity to deliver uh, outstanding education. So that is what we are focused on as a foundation. Is that the biggest challenge, uh, workforce? Well, if you take the UK as an example, Alberto, what we have is a, a recruitment and retention crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, teachers, teachers don't want to stay in the job. I think there's a statistic somewhere that says um, within the first five years of qualifying as a teacher, something like 50% of that cohort uh, leave the profession. If you take the sustainable development goals, uh, SDG 4, which is around the provision of a quality education for all, um, you know, demands that actually we recruit an additional or new uh, 69 million new teachers to deliver SDG 4. And that expires in, in 11 years. And so when I think about the, you know, the provision of education uh, around the world, not just in, in, the de- in the developed or Western industrialized countries, you know, teachers are pretty fundamental to everything that happens. Actually, in Davos a few years ago, we had a discussion whether teachers would be replaced by robots, uh-huh. because that's that seemed to be a subject that people were really touting around. And even the biggest corporate names, whether you're looking at McKinsey and Accenture or BCG or, you know, all these leading institutes, they all had to surmise that a teacher's job will not be replaced by robots. And that's why we have to invest um, in the building of, um, you know, in the capacity building of, of the teaching profession. And that's what our foundation is focused on. So if we look at everything as an ecosystem, and we look at the, the wonderful philanthropic work that you're doing through the foundation side and increasing the status of teachers. What about the other side of your life, which is Tomorrow Digital, which is, as I understand it, a, a for-profit vehicle. You have a strong connection with education technology. And I imagine you, you look at these things within, again, a sort of symbiotic setting, right? You, you, don't, you, look at, you don't look at them entirely as disjointed endeavors. 100% not. And, you know, um, actually, the reason that I have taken up this interest in education technology is because of what I've seen over the last decade through my role in the foundation. Uh-huh. Uh, where the challenges are so significant. And, you know, instinctively, we understand that technology is here to stay and is part of the solution. But we don't know what questions to ask. We don't know who to ask them from. And we don't really understand the potential, the true potential that technology has in transforming lives in classrooms. And so the mistake that people make is they constantly, you know, when you think about technology and if, if you take a UN platform or somewhere like that, the instinct is always to go for a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft or someone like that to come and pontificate on education technology. Um, and, you know, what I, I, I don't know about you, but when I sat in those kind of discussions, I didn't really learn much. Uh-huh. And what I decided to do in, uh, as part of my role of Tomorrow Digital, which I've been performing for just under a year, is just go and meet people. You know, every day I meet startups, I meet innovators, I, need, I meet people who are trying to, trying to make that difference, whether about thinking about the key challenge of online learning, whether it's about 
well, how do I enhance teacher productivity? How do I think about personalization in education? You know, all of these things are, are huge challenges. I, I, I give them that. The thing that I found most interesting is how woeful this state of affairs is when it comes to edtech entrepreneurs who actually, you know, treat edtech or education sector just like they would treat the financial services sector, which is as a marketplace. I think the potential for impact is just is just so significantly large that they make the mistake of just thinking dollar signs or pound signs uh, in front of sales of their product or app or service, uh, whereas I think they could have a, a transformational impact on, on, on how our societies run. So when I think about that fundamental um, you know, challenge that they face, um, my one message to them is to always speak in terms of learning outcomes. You know, without that, everything is just marketing and an opinion. Um, whereas when I when I want to understand, like you know, well, you know, you say your your app or your product or your your math program or your literacy thing that you do, you know, show me the impact you're having. And is when when you ask them that question, you know, three quarters if not more just drop away. And that is why I, I've been sorely disappointed with um, with the state of startups actually. Um, and it's but it's something that we have to keep on plugging away at and making sure that people understand that this is an important aspect of being in education. It's not just about the tech; it's about the ed, and that's that's the appeal that I've been I've been pushing out there. Do I get the sense then that the ed tech sector itself, those who are the entrepreneurs coming into it, they tend to come from the technology side, not the education side, and then they try to tack on the ed in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, just because we've all been to school, we seem to have an opinion as to what we were. And I think it's part of that. Part of it is just their education, um, their own education about the education sector is pretty incomplete. I'll give you another example. So you find many startups today that, you know, that are trying to address a key challenge. And you ask them a simple question. Have you have you actually spoken to teachers um, or involved them in the design process? Because ultimately they will have to, you know, they have to deliver this. And I would say to you that the vast majority, again, stumble on that question as well. And that is what I find quite disappointing with regards to their tech sector. That being said, I mean, I don't want to just paint a picture of doom and gloom. We have to be entirely hopeful and we have to recognize that uh, we are at a very early stage in the adoption of learning technologies and there's a long way to go, but we have to be committed to it because the potential is huge. And actually, many of the challenges that we face could be overcome by good ed tech, as I call it. Yeah. I remember when we met two years ago for a coffee, I'm going to quote you if I may, but I think you said something along the lines of most ed tech is just crap. We can always cut this out later on, but I imagine you you're, you stand by that. What's the state of affairs now and where are we heading for the next five or 10 years? And, and let's say that the next 10 years, uh, as we as we dovetail nicely with the, the target date for the sustainable development goals, artificial intelligence, any of these things, what, what's most exciting in the landscape going forward? I actually think that's um, a great question. I don't mind you not editing that bit out. Okay, good. Uh, uh, you know, it is still a view uh, that I hold somewhere. But like I said, we have to be hopeful. And, you know, by by investing in this process, whether it's through our, our funding, whether it's through our mentorship, whether it's by, you know, we're about to launch a, a venture studio, uh, by doing all these things, we're trying to address these challenges and help build out an ecosystem um, in, in the world around what good looks like. Uh -huh. um, you know, previously, when you and I met, 
and we had that conversation. I was literally just um, a, 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 you know, someone standing on the edges of the conversation. Right. Uh, but now I'm trying to address it, and I'm trying to address it. And I found a bunch of people like me out there who are also trying to address it, which I, which actually gives me a lot of hope and optimism for the future. Uh, you know, the the areas that I think um, we have to really grapple with. Uh, when it comes to the ed tech sector is to do with actually political leadership more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, the, the challenge that we face actually is in the way that schools and education systems procure products. And often the cost of acquisition of a student or a school are just so high because you have to go school by school by school uh, that actually it becomes um, it becomes a little bit challenging as a business model. Um, and you know the thing is that this isn't just limited to the UK, but you know a lot. As I said a couple of weeks ago, I was in Brazil, and they have a similar challenge over there. And I know from my experience of speaking to people in other parts of the world, this is similarly a challenge for them. Um, So the political leadership that is required is to understand that actually procurement policies are not just simply to do with buying hardware. And often what happens is that, you know, when you think about tech, it comes down to TV screens, whiteboards and that kind of thing. Actually, we have to think in a more mature fashion as to, well, how do we procure the best uh, numeracy apps or how do we how do we think about personalization in the classroom? And for that, we need we need political leaders, actually, because 95 percent, if not more, of education is delivered by the public sector. And that's why we need inspired political leadership. Um, so in the UK, for example, the UK government um, has recently pushed out a number of guidelines and are doing a number of things which are which are very welcome and i think great first step likewise in brazil um you know like which i was in two weeks ago you know they they seem to be starting to have that conversation about procurement and how how the state should be interacting with that tech um but in many parts of the world this conversation doesn't happen uh-huh. and i think that's by, by encouraging governments and innovators to actually get together to talk about these issues, I think is a pretty good value add in that sense. So uh, when you talk about what the potential is, you know, I think about a, a company like Pango, uh, this, use one example, which looks at lesson planning. You know, the founder of that, uh, of that company uh, recently talked to me about how every night uh, a teacher will spend anywhere between one and three hours lesson planning. And just like, for example, accountants have um, software services packages like QuickBooks or Sage, or people in sales and marketing have Salesforce, you know, teachers use a multitude of different platforms uh, to perform their roles, whether it's PowerPoint, Word, you know, even their emails. Um, and so Pango is that kind of service that actually lets you pull together these resources and actually minimize the time you spend on tasks which can be, you know, which you can share, you can automate, um, and that will actually help drive teacher productivity, in my opinion. Why shouldn't lesson plans be shared? Why shouldn't, why shouldn't teachers review other lesson plans and improve them um, that you can use? And I, if I th- and I think that's a really great value add in terms of edtech. Like that, there are other things out there which I think, uh, which I think could do fantastically well as well. Uh, and so that's why I'm excited about the sector. Now you have your 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 finger on the pulse of quite a few areas. It's the the advocacy piece, the philanthropy piece, the entrepreneurial, social entrepreneurial, ed tech, and so forth. And you mentioned about people coming together. Uh, yeah. I imagine if you're really going to transform public view and policy, the Global Education and Skills Forum that you organize annually is probably just as good a place as any 
to bring all of these diverse stakeholders together and, and, and get a conversation going. I, I remember when I was there last year, you did have stakeholders, really interesting stakeholders from the foundations world, from the ed tech space, from government, and not just from one country, but really across the board. Is that part of the rationale for the Global Education Skills Forum? And is that is that ultimately how you think you might be able to achieve your ambition of getting these procurement and these policies and all of that transformed for the better? So uh, at the beginning of this podcast, you asked me about my views on how philanthropy can actually, as, how thinks about at least about systemic impact and transformation. And one of the things that I've done over the last few years in my role as the chair of the Vaki Foundation is to think about, well, you know, along with the board, to think about the money that we spend, uh, which is pretty sizable now, um, and whether we're having the impact that we so desire. And, you know, in, in the process, I, I spoke to a number of other foundation leaders from around the world, actually, who have either similar size organizations or larger. And what I what I have come down to, um, especially when it comes to education, is I view philanthropy as courage capital, um, you know, to, to invest in areas where the public sector in particular will just not be able to. But in order by by actually making resources available, strengthen the public sector is my way of talking about this. And by doing so, what happens is that um, you're able to extend, um, you know, uh, whether it's research, whether it's programming, whether it's um, knowledge sharing um, in a significant fashion, uh, which otherwise normally would no one else would step forward and do. Now, when it comes to convening, I see convening, um, especially our convenings, because, you know, ultimately they do cost money um, as, as being exactly that, which is the use of courage money, because um, because convening costs so much, not many people do it and they don't do it well enough. So one of the fundamental purposes of our foundation is to bring people together, um, you know, from a multitude of sectors and uh, to talk about this one particular issue, uh, which is a Education. So you're right to say that our Global Education and Skills Forum, um, our foundation's uh, event, is uh, uh, tr- tries to do that. So this year we had nearly 50 education ministers from around the world. We had you know, 100 philanthropic leaders from around the world. We had you know, people from the learning sciences. We had you know, teachers. We, so by bringing you know, a multitude of, um, of perspectives, I think you really do um, you know, set up conversations um, that, may, that may actually advance thinking, practice, and, and all the good things that you're looking for. So that is why we over-invest yeah. over in convening. And one thing, if I may say, which maybe raise an eyebrow, but in a, in a very positive way, is that take this year's uh, Global Education Skills Forum, you had there a certain representative from one of the Swiss foundations who happens to be a big investor in a, in a rival private education system, I suppose, and, um, and very collegial and, and, and a very warm and heartfelt welcome uh, that you extended, right? And, and, the, and they're a partner of our organization. It's not, you know, again, like, you know, if you think about the range of people that come all the way, you know, all the way from the trade unions. So one of our partners is Education International, which is the Global Federation of Teacher Unions uh, at one end. And the other end, you have someone like a GEMS Education, which is a for profit private education provider um, and everything in between. And so by by actually providing a platform where everyone can come together um, and at least press flesh and look each other in the eye and have honest conversations, I think the world is a better place. No, that's excellent. 
I know we're going to be wrapping up shortly because I know the schedule is a little bit tight, but also let me ask you on the market-based solutions side of things then. So GEMS being a, a for-profit enterprise that you, you just touched on and the need for high-quality education globally, what's the role of market-based solutions and for-profit enterprises within the education system and the skepticism that some, some sectors of society have with regards to private actors in this space? Tell us a bit about your thinking about that. Sure. So um, this conversation, actually, what I found, because I initially 10 years ago, I didn't come from education. What I found were were so many ideological fault lines when it comes to education. And this was one of them. Right. But there are many other there are many others. You know, the the focus that I have on all these things is does it improve classroom outcomes? Are kids doing better? Um, and if you keep that lens on it, whether it's private, public, not for profit, um, really doesn't matter in my in my mind at least you know this conversation over the last few years has matured in that you know there's lots of people who want to participate in it i think there is acceptance that the private sector does exist and in many countries it is sizable you know th there is no conflict between private and public you know, usually what happens is that the private sector is painted as this bogeyman that's trying to undermine the public sector mm -hmm. um, you know and i I, I challenge that actually. I don't think that is the case. There are a lot of very responsible businesses and companies that actually run schools around the world that do a formidable job in in trying to build the capacity of the public sector, uh, GEMS being one of them. Um, but likewise, one of the things that I would do is I would actually um, I would actually uh, call this um, you know lack of political leadership in one way or the other. So uh, when I look at education provision. Um, you know, I can point to so many examples where actually we should all stand together shoulder to shoulder to think about, again, that point that I made earlier about better political leadership in education, uh, because that is what requ is required to actually improve the state of education in the world. And that is where I think um, I have found a great receptivity from all the quarters to making sure that we have better education ministers, we have more inspired political leadership and better system leadership as a whole in education. And I think we can all contribute and back that particular um, campaign. Are, we, uh, are you optimistic about us achieving SDG number four on, on high quality education for 2030? Um, you know, we have a um, uh, 2020 will be interesting. Uh, you know, okay. we're only five years in, and this year, this year, you know, there's a high-level political forum when it comes to SDG four, and you know, governments will have to almost determine from from now onwards whether we're going to hit that goal or not. Uh, what we, as a foundation, and uh, and I, as a um, as someone in the sector, have been doing, is using every opportunity we can to make sure we lobby. Uh, our politicians more effectively by making sure that they they recognize the importance of education. Today in the world, um, you know, where there's so many things blowing up all over the place, uh, the only hope we have is education. Uh, and for that reason, we need to keep on making that, uh, make, um, you know, making the case, just like the climate change lobby has done around climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, not that the two are in competition, uh, but we have to do that. You know, one of the challenges that we have is in education, um, you know, results are not seen overnight. So in the healthcare sector, for example, if you have Ebola or Zika or some, something like that, you see people dying on the streets and therefore there's a sense of urgency that happens, uh, that comes across, that people mobilize and, and solve the issue um, quite rapidly. In education, it's like a slow cancer. It takes us 15 to 20 years to find out what's gone wrong. And by that time, you've had probably seven or eight education ministers. You've probably had two or three different governments. You know, who, who, who is accountable for it? 
And so that is the challenge that we face. How do you tackle that mismatch between election cycles and the, the payoff rate in investing in, in education? Uh, if I knew the answer, I'd give you a million dollars. <laughs> I think what happens is that um, there's only a few places in the world today that I actually think that the ministers of education that I have want to be the education minister as opposed to use it as a staging post to something either bigger or actually exiting a government. It's usually a job on the way up or on the way down, uh, is how I see it. And, Good and, observation. And so when, you, when you see it like that, um, you know, the, the people that are actually doing phenomenal work, not just at a central government level, but also at a state level or even a provincial level or a, or a small village level, I think have to be celebrated. We've toyed with the idea for many years of just having a Best Education Minister Prize. Uh, because I think that is, you know, we have to we have to we have to show people what good leadership looks like in education, and that could be something that if if your listeners are interested in, we can talk a little bit further about. I, I'm interested in something like that. It, it would present a challenge. So how do you go about it, right? With with the post being so transient, oftentimes and 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 politically, um, but I think the idea is right on target. Uh, so yeah, I encourage you on that one to pursue. So let me ask you. So as as you know. And our listeners know the purpose of the podcast, again, is to inspire our listeners to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. If our listeners forgot everything that you've just said over the last half hour, 40 minutes, but took away just one salient point, one key takeaway, what should that be? So in education, I think nothing starts or ends without teachers. And so what I'd like to encourage anyone who is either you know, getting involved in enterprise, is thinking about a social enterprise, is thinking about um, a foundation, is thinking about you know, a charity, um, you know, make sure you consult teachers on what actually works and, and involve them in the design of what you're trying to do. I think those conversations for me have been the most fruitful uh, and the most eye-opening. Uh, and so that's what I'd like to encourage all your listeners to think about when it comes to education. That's very, very insightful indeed. Putting aside someone who might want to apply for the Teacher's Prize, we've already addressed that. But if somebody is an education technology entrepreneur, somebody's interested, what's the best way of getting in touch with you or your organization if they want to continue this conversation beyond the podcast? So we exist on social media. Uh, you're more than welcome to follow me on Twitter. You're more than welcome to do so on LinkedIn. Um, if you want my email, it's vikas at tmrwdigital.com. Um, please do get in touch. We're open to every and all idea to improve education outcomes for children. Very well said. Very well said. And for our listeners, on top of that, just to let you know, we will have episode notes. We'll, we'll highlight all the key points we've discussed today. I will also make sure that I, I include relevant links to Vikas's uh, social media channels and relevant organizations as well. All of this you can find out on our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And uh, by all means, please do subscribe if you enjoyed today's podcast. It makes a world of difference for us and it helps others discover this show. And Vikas, really, I can't tell you how... Um, how happy I am that you were able to join the podcast today. And also, really, I forgot how interesting our conversations are. It's been a while. And um, I've learned a lot today and walk away more inspired. Uh, but, uh, I hope our listeners do too. I think there's quite a bit of food for thought in what we've just discussed and what you've just expressed over the last half hour. 
You're very kind. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Alberto. I'm very grateful to you and look forward to feedback from your listeners as well. Definitely. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <laughs>